Introducing Mortgage Matters. This is a great time to go buy a house. This is when the real estate fortunes are made. A show dedicated to helping you navigate the challenging and ever-changing financial and real estate landscape. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were put into conservatorship in 2008 and continued to dominate the mortgage market. Now, your hosts, Dan Podesto and Jason Grody of Central Coast Lending. The fact that you're being called upon to help clean up Wall Street's mess... Is an outrage. Broadcasting outrage, live outrage. from the KVEC studios in San Luis Obispo. What economy are you talking about? Talking it's about, time about. for Mortgage Matters. All right. Are we there? I'm not plugged in, am I? You're live, buddy. You're live. All right. I got both ears working. I am ready to rock this morning. Glad you have joined us. Glad to be here this morning. That strange yet familiar voice you hear is, uh, he's no stranger to the show. He just hasn't been here in a while. Wes Burke of Patterson Realty. Welcome. Good morning, Dan. Glad you could make it here. Yeah. Nice new studio. Yeah. That's right. You haven't seen the new digs yet with the big, the big, what are those, like 14 foot tall windows? Yeah. Those windows are great. And the hillside view is awesome. I can't. I can't get enough of the view. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty nice. It's it's feeling like home now. Well, we've been here about a year or so. It feels like. Yeah, I was gonna say it's kind of silly to to welcome you to your new digs when it's you've been here that <laughs> long. Been, been here it's actually me that's not been here <laughs> yeah. for a very long well, time. Okay. That's all right. You can still you know bring a bottle of wine or whatever the typical uh, housewarming gesture should be. Yeah. Um. Well, here we are. We're uh, we're getting started. We got another live show here. Um. We're uh, we're changing it up a little bit. Brought Wes in. We're going to talk about a new home uh, development that's here in the county. That, um, that well, I'll let Wes tell you more about that here in a little bit. But I thought before we we got going on that too much, we could just kind of recap the week that was and um, kind of let you know where the markets are going a little bit. Yeah. There's that that, sound good? yeah yeah there's a lot to talk about. I, Jason was in our office meeting this oh. this week and we talked a little bit about the direction of interest rates. So clearly, I think you're going to want to want to talk to your audience about that. I think that you know, in in light of the fact that the uh, the government didn't um, accomplish anything very productive yesterday, and now we're uh, in the midst we of a government shutdown. Shutdown. We can talk about that. Yeah. Obviously, we have a, a lot of year-end statistics relative to the real estate market that we, that we can talk about. So. Despite the fact that the um, the ever vocal Jason isn't here today, <laughs> I think we won't run short. There's of, uh, yeah, there's of plenty discussion. of news. Yeah, um, yeah. So the the big thing that's that we're seeing, at least on the mortgage side, is rates. Rates are moving higher. Um, it's been been going that direction since probably before the end of the year. Um, although it was a little more modest um, prior to year end. Now that the new year's upon us here, we're starting to see a little more, um, the rates are just moving a little faster. They're moving higher. Um, there's some, I was trying to do a little research on this today because it just didn't really seem clear to me why we were experiencing these moves. Um, it, and I know that there's forecasts of another three fed rate hikes this year, which, you know, I think we've, we've been believing that to be the case for quite a while now. So that shouldn't be a surprise. That shouldn't be really market moving information, I don't even know that it's new information. So 
Um, I, I tried to do a little homework on this rate movement issue because we've seen rates move up, I'd say, anywhere from an eighth to a quarter of a point in the last week or two, which is pretty big movement um, for such a short period of time. And the best that I could find here is that there's there's concern that with a growing deficit that there's going to need to be additional debt issuance and that is is pushing yields higher um you know more debt issuance is is another way of saying there's going to be more supply out in the market and in order to attract buyers for that additional debt issuance they're going to need to have higher more attractive yields and so the yields are pushing higher in anticipation of the larger debt issuance so here's what i found is um the Treasury, the U.S. Treasury, showed that the federal budget deficit was $23 billion in December and $225 billion through the first three months of the fiscal year 2018, which the fiscal year starts October 1. So that that fourth quarter of 2017 was the first three months of, of the fiscal year. Um, and so that $225 billion deficit for that period of time was about $200 billion above the Congressional Budget Office's estimates. So because it was so much higher than what was anticipated, now we have this this belief that there's going to need to be additional debt issuance, which is moving yields higher. So what we've seen is the 10-year Treasury note move above its comfortable trading range of about 23 to 2.5%. Now it's, it's into the two sixes with what we've seen is some resistance at the lower end there, about 2.6%. So kind of tells us that we're here in a new realm where uh, I heard I heard some, some folks smarter than I talking on, on TV this week about yields, you know, in a range of anywhere from 2.6% to 3%, which means we're talking about 30-year fixed mortgage rates that, that are going to be between 4 and 4.5% um, as long as 10-year notes stays where it is. So that's definitely a, a big move up from the sub 4% rates we enjoyed pretty much all of last year. Um, that's It's big for refinancing activity for anyone who was thinking that there was a little bit of opportunity there. It's, it's a big deal for them. It might take any opportunity away. On the purchasing side, uh, you know, home buying side, I don't know that it really impacts too much. I, oh, I think it does. I mean, let's talk about it. What, okay. What kind of uh, impact, and you may, you may have to pop up your, your calculator, but I don't know, maybe you live in this world and can do it <laughs> on the fly, but, you know, it, let's just take a, a, the, let's take a median price of $500,000. You know, what does a half a percent in increased interest rate do to the payment, you know, with a with a reasonable down down payment, call it ten or twenty percent, whatever you. Yeah, let's you let's with. say a twenty percent down payment, a four hundred thousand dollar loan. You're probably looking at you know a half a percent is going to mean three hundred dollars, four hundred dollars a month. I'd say three hundred probably. And so while that that may not necessarily disqualify a whole bunch of people from being able to execute a purchase, it's likely to have an impact on what they can borrow. Right. So. Um, somebody that before this change could have afforded five fifty may now only be able to afford five. Right, and that's you know it it um it can be significant, especially at the entry level end of the market where there's kind of price compression and small changes in value can have pretty radical impacts on the quality of of the home that's available. But as far as someone 
making a decision that, hey, I'm going to go out and I'm going to I'm going to look at buying a home. It's a rate movement isn't generally stopping that person from deciding whether or not to make that move. It might it might change the price range that they're looking at, but it's not going to change their desire to want to buy the home necessarily. Do you think? No, I mean, I, I hope you're right. I, I think what concerns me a little bit is that, you know, we, we've we um, stacked up a, a number of years of, of pretty healthy market activity, right? We've seen um, appreciation. Several of the, the years in the last eight have been double-digit appreciation. Last year, I think we were around the – came in around the seven mark around the county. So it's pretty aggressive appreciation, and, and historically in San Luis Obispo, the r- real estate cycle – runs pretty close to about a, a 10-year period. So if you go back over mm-hmm. the last 50 years, you start to see a pattern that about every 10 years there's a correction. And sometimes it's 12, sometimes it's 9. But you know, roughly speaking, it's about every decade we see a little bit of a, of a correction. The last one was obviously very painful and, and very deep. So we don't know how that's going to affect the cycle. Both we don't know when the next downturn will be, nor do we know how deep it will be. I suspect it will be um, – we still have a few years – at least a couple, and, and I suspect that it won't be nearly as, as radical as the last one. But what I'm getting at is that you have interest rates creeping up now. You've got this reality that we're probably on the tail end of a really healthy market, and it's reasonable to start to expect a correction. And so do all of these things combine to influence the decision of the buyer pool in general, right? I mean, if you're a buyer right now and you were thinking about buying last year, you struggled because there was a lack of inventory, you didn't find that place that really rang your bell, now interest rates are, are creeping up and, you, and you're starting to kind of sit back and do the math, does all of this compile to, to trigger you to maybe sit on the sidelines and, and wait? And does that happen enough that we actually have that affect the market in general? Yeah, I can definitely, I, I could say I could be discouraging, but I... I I feel like someone's still at least going to investigate the options out there, the opportunities. I think one, there's a couple things that I think are are good news, are supporting that that the recent rise in rates isn't really affecting the market. One, we saw purchase applications rising last week. We saw a 4% increase in purchase applications. So people are still applying for pre-approval to see you know, what the what the opportunities are for them. So that's still a good thing. Uh, you're making me feel weird, Dan, because you're so optimistic, and normally I'm with you. Right? You know, I, usually it's you and I ganging up on Jason, who's <laughs> delivering the pessimism. But I'm going to play devil's advocate. Just, I mean, okay. I'm just going to ask you that that increase. I mean, it sounds to me like it, it's um, probably seasonality of. It could of very the well be cycle. that too. It it very well could be because it's a week over week measure. So you know, people are just waking up from the holidays, and they could just. You know, it could be a New Year's resolution. Hey, I'm going to see about buying a home this year. And maybe they're not serious about it. Maybe they are, but they're at least putting the application into process and, and see if it's something that's really real for them. And so this this stat that you're using is not adjusted for, for seasonality because I know a lot of times they are. This one, this is a weekly measure, it's mortgage applications. It's um, it's just showing from week to week what the 
rise or fall of, of applications is. Refi activity also was up as far as applications go. So now that's surprising. It, it to me, I, I think seasonality does play in here. You know, first couple of weeks of January, people have had this on their to do list for a while. They're seeing, if anything, rising rates are probably motivating them. Getting the fence you know, sitters. Yeah, in. there's this yeah. tendency to want to just, well, I'm going to wait and see if it gets a little better, something like that. And, and then oh, it, it's then not. It gets a little worse. So, they, <laughs> so they I might as well do it. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is that it seems pretty clear to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, I know every area is a little different, but <clears throat> it seems like we're seeing less of the cash buyer, more of the, um, and, you know, just more people buying homes with financing, not necessarily your big time investors with lots of cash. Um, and that belief is supported by a statistic I found from the National Association of Realtors. They reported that last year, 88% of buyers finance their homes. And then when you when you talk about different age demographics, when you look at the younger buyer, 98% of them finance their homes. So a lot of the purchasing activity is coming with with financing. So I know back when the market was really hot, you know, 2012 through like 15, 16, and there's lots of purchase activity, a lot of uh, really up, good deals, especially when you look at it today, um, there was a lot of cash transactions, a lot of people with money who had, you know, made it through the downturn relatively unscathed and had the ability to buy things cash. And they were, you know, whether they were just able to make a more aggressive offer or a faster close type of offer, they were winning those deals over the people with financing. But now it looks like if you're a buyer using financing, you're just one of the many that's out there trying to trying to win the deal with that approach. So Yeah, I mean Dan, that's that's actually not a statistic that I've looked at recently, but I think it's really interesting and it, it does um resonate with me. It feels it feels accurate. You know, I can just tell you that my, my gut tells me that yeah, that's that's what's happened because certainly I, I would agree that in two thousand, you know, eleven, twelve, thirteen there was a lot of cash a lot of cash in the marketplace and and it was challenging. I mean, especially for first-time buyers that were competing aggressively against investors, you know, and the, and they were using financing, and the investors would come in with cash, and and obviously that tilts the scales rather radically. But but we're not seeing that as as much. So yeah, I, I think you're onto something there. So the people who are buying now in our local market are people who are looking to occupy the property and. Yeah, I've, I mean, I still think there's some investors out there, but I do think that that activity has waned, and and I think that that makes sense. You know, I mean, like you said, we we had some really pretty great deals at the time. Um, folks that that had the vision and the liquidity to to jump in, they they probably uh, were, were active in in that time frame, and and now it's getting to the point where you're scratching your head a little bit, like, oh, we're kind of back up, you know, to the top of the the market, coming back to um, all time. Highs is is this actually the time to put a lot of investment dollars into real estate, or is or right. is it maybe time to 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 wait and see what happens a little bit? Well, I I feel like this has me thinking about home values today. Um, you know, like you said, several of the last eight to ten years have been double digit appreciation. Um, this last year, depending on the index you look at, you're going to see anywhere from six to eight percent appreciation for last year. So still an above normal clip there. Um, but when when I see that nearly ninety percent of home buyers are using financing, um, and at the same time I'm seeing interest rates rise in a in a meaningful way. I mean, this isn't just 
negligible increases in rates. These are these are real increases. Like quarter point in, in a two weeks is a is a real noticeable increase. Is that with all the buyers, with so many of the buyers using financing and rates rising, is this going to be the factor that finally puts a cap on home appreciation? Are we are we poised to see some kind of plateauing? I I still don't see a a scenario here in the short term where where values are likely to decline at all just because the demand is still so high but i think people's ability to afford is really what's going to what's going to control price movement going forward yeah well that's a big can of worms that you're <laughs> you're dancing around dan um i i think that you know it's it's worth talking about the appreciation that we've we've seen but there there's more going on than than just appreciation and affordability is is really a huge concern. I mean, in San Luis Obispo proper, we're less than 25% affordability. That's wow. crisis level. I mean, that's a problem. We have, um, you know, we've now seen the median home price exceed 700000 in San Luis Obispo. Wow. That's a number that I've never seen. Um, last year was 679, 578, and, and 2017, the median climbed up to 710. And um, but but I think some of the more telling stats relative to the real estate market are um, that, for example, the average days on market in 2016, it was 45 in 2017, it was 36. So we saw about a 25 percent decrease in the average market time. But the number of transactions was down rather radically as well. So in 2016, uh, 444 transactions occurred in San Luis Obispo proper. Um, last year, 357. Wow. That all tells a story about a lack of inventory. And I think that the lack of inventory is one of the most significant causes of the appreciation that we've seen. When there's just nothing to buy and lots of people that want to buy, you see the kind of price appreciation that, that we're seeing. And, and that story is being told all around California. And it doesn't really matter if you're in the Central Valley where median home prices are are half of ours or less. All of these stats kind of mirror in terms of percentages. You're seeing this kind of thing play out all over the state of California. And never before have I heard such a cry from state um, real estate economists about the crisis that we have on our hands relative to affordability. And we, um, you know, this this is going to play well into some of the conversation that that, that I hope we'll get to later in the show um, about new construction. You know, I mean, we're we're going to talk about a project that that we're working on, but also I think the the more important conversation really is is about new construction in general. And when, when I was preparing yesterday uh, for today's show, I I looked at some online resources that kind of put together all of the the new construction projects that are going on. Um, across the county and, and San Luis Obispo, and and frankly, I was surprised. There's a lot more new construction than than I realized. You know, when you when you look at it cumulatively, mm-hmm. um, it, it you, you're aware that there's quite a bit going on. But um, and I and I think there's probably a propensity locally. In fact, I've seen you know feedback on social media and such that we got to slow this down. We want to preserve our community and all of this. But the the reality is we're so far behind. And even what's being done, while it feels right now like there's a significant amount of of sticks and dirt, the truth is it's just not nearly enough to offset um, the demand. So we have a long-term supply and demand 
problem that's, that's created an affordability crisis. And um, it's difficult to see how our market is going to depreciate until there's something that, that changes that equation. And, and I think that, you know, what has to happen is, is something more radical with the overall economy that just scares people into not wanting to, to do anything except sit on the sidelines. Yeah, I'm with you. There's there's too much demand. There's not enough. I mean, even as many sticks are finally hitting the dirt today, I mean, these are the projects we were talking about in 2010 and 11 as the market was just beginning to thaw. And here we are six, seven years later, and finally we're seeing the structures rise. I mean, it takes a long time to get through this planning process and the permitting and the different review boards. And, you know, so many people have a say in in this stuff. So it takes a long time for a project to actually become a purchasable, uh, you know, yeah, uh, occupiable home. unit. That's true. And <laughs> it's really true. And it's, it's getting, you know, longer and more arduous and more expensive um, every year that goes, goes by. And, and it's, uh, it's something else. I mean, in San Luis, I think there's something around 40 projects that are in some part of the, the planning process, but the reality is a, a lot of those projects are, um, you know, decades in the making i mean the um especially those larger ones that'll make a big impact on the supply demand issue yeah it's very true they they take in excess of of 10 years often and and sometimes it's 20 or 30 years but even the smaller projects and i worked on uh, um it's been about a decade ago since we started it but it was a little project three units just three units on garden street in san luis obispo And and I helped the the buyer acquire that land. So from from start to finish to to occupancy, nine years. Wow. And and we worked diligently, constantly on that project with you know all local architects and engineers, people that know how to navigate the system. And it took nine years to get that thing done. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the biggest factors in why homes cost so much. I mean, that's oh, a yeah. long time to carry carry a project. It is. I mean, <laughs> you've got a lot of expenses associated with carrying that thing. I mean, the, the land costs alone are pretty radical yeah. in San Luis Obispo. But then, you know, all the money that you spend on on the project and, and permitting it, you know, I mean, just to just the permitting alone, the fees that you'll pay to the city in San Luis Obispo are about seventy thousand dollars per unit. That's crazy. Yeah, and we wonder why we've got an affordability crisis, right? Yeah, yeah. It's. Plus, um, I have a question about that. Actually, sure. when something sits that long, too, somebody's got to pay the property taxes for all that time, right? Yeah, there's property taxes. I mean, when it's just dirt, there's generally no insurance on it, but right. still, the property taxes. I mean, that's right in the middle of downtown San Luis Obispo. Yeah. That can't be a cheap piece of dirt. No, no I, I mean, I, it was a, a very small parcel. And the project I said was three units, and it, it was, but you know, it, um, it, it was a planned urban development, so it's very dense and compact, yeah. um, a very small piece of property, and and you know, I think the the land values on it were between six and eight hundred thousand. Yeah. So you're paying taxes on that. On you're that, right. Yeah. Then it's just sitting there. And then it's just sitting there, and you're paying engineers and architects yeah. and you know everybody except realtors. They don't get paid till the end. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> Same here on the mortgage side. But you know, another thing that's that's a reality in in that in that world, the the development world, is that people I mean, people think that developers are just making gobs and gobs and gobs of money. Quite the opposite. It's not true. It's a very very high risk industry to start with. It's easy to lose 
money. It's easy to go bankrupt. And if you hit a home run, you're making seven, eight, ten percent. I was going to say, yeah, with it's really it's the it's the builders that can do the really large scale projects that can make some some good money. And it's not because but the not, percentage is right. high. It's because the volume. You know, it's volume. Yeah. But when you're talking about a little three unit project, I mean, that's all risk, not a lot of reward. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it's very true. <laughs> Um, hey, we're hitting the half hour mark here. I think it's a good time to take a quick break and uh, time out for the sponsors. There's a, this real estate company that pays to sponsor the show. Got to give them their time. Um, but we'll be back. We've got Wes Burke here. He's the broker and owner of Patterson Realty. And we're going to talk a little bit of new construction when we come back. We'll, so uh, please stick around for more Mortgage Matters. Mortgage Matters with host Dan and Jason will be right back. Join the conversation by calling 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Hi, this is Jason Grody of Central Coast Lending. There's a common myth that home buyers need to save a 20% down payment to buy a home. The fact is we offer numerous zero down and low down payment loan programs. Before you meet with a realtor, step one is to get pre-approved. Just call 543 Central Coast Lending is an equal housing lender. California BRE number 0183960008. California DBO number 6054783. NMLS number 328358. We're the mortgage experts on the Central Coast. Central Coast Lending. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people, agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley and Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley and Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley and Blakesley, for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. Welcome back. You're listening to Mortgage Matters with hosts Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending. If you want to join the conversation, call the show at 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Now, here's Dan and Jason. I'm trying to get Joan Jett. I, I love rock and roll. There we go. All right. A little bit of a precursor on that one. There we go. All right. Now we got it rolling. Rocking and rolling. There we go. I was worried there. I thought maybe I had a bad <laughs> reputation that I wasn't aware of. Or no, 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 no. I was trying to draw the no, connection. Maybe that's why he hasn't been invited back. We're, gonna rock and roll. We're rocking and rolling with this show now. All right, all right. All right. 
Hey, folks, do you want to remind you here? We're live in the studio. We'd love to hear from you. 543-8830. 543-8830. Jim will take your call, put you live on the air if you so desire. Um, or if you're shy, you can just tell him your question or comment, and he'll share it here live on the air for you. Um, so I'm here talking to Wes Burke. We've just been kind of recapping the week a little bit, uh, starting to dive into some of the housing crunch issues, and um, we're going to roll that discussion into new construction. But first, should we hop to the phone lines? Yeah, let's just go. Uh, uh, we have Michael in a Tascadero. All right. Good morning, Michael. Hi. Hey, I, I just wanted to address the uh, issue of uh, water and sewer, and you guys are talking about putting in uh, new units and all that stuff. And uh, could you just uh, address uh, where San Luis Obispo gets their water and uh, if we're on state water and uh, uh, stuff about water? Because I know it takes water to, to break ground and build a new house. Sure. Yeah. That's Thanks. A... I'll listen up. Okay. Thanks for the call, Michael. Appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, water and uh, resource usage in general is, is obviously one of the big concerns about um, about growth in, in housing units. I know one of the, we're going to try to answer some of the, the specific questions, but first in general, I want to say that um, one of the positive things about new home construction is that there's there's efficiency. There's there's definite advantages to new homes and the efficiency of the use of water, electricity. Um, a lot of new construction employs um, solar panels, and you know there's just all the the new stuff that's more energy efficient and water efficient. A lot of the new landscaping and new construction is um, you know low water usage, drought tolerant type stuff. So. I think, you know, a lot of people get worried about new construction and how it's just going to tap all the resources that we have available for our existing housing stock. But they don't really think that, you know, the the home built in 2018 is a much different home than the home that was built in 1950. Um, there's there's just it's got the features there's just even the orientation of the way the home is placed on a lot is is more thought out now to use the sun and and the different um, lot features to help aid in the heating and cooling of a home and stuff like that. So specific to water, though, um, what are you finding there, Wes? Well, I mean, it's a great question, and I, I have to admit that I'm I'm not as studied on this as, as maybe I should be, to, you know, considering the conversation we're having today. But um, it, it's a huge issue. I mean, we all know that the Paso groundwater um, basin is, is – uh, radically impacted and 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 it's a problem even though we had a decent rain year last year it doesn't look like we're going to have one worth a hoot this year no and um so i i think that's a it's a really a great question and a, and a great issue and i think it's something that californians are going to have to pay a lot of attention to moving forward uh, san luis proper has has four primary water supply sources the salinas reservoir well rock reservoir um, Nacimiento Reservoir, and and then there's groundwater and uh, and recycled water. You know, we've got a, a, a water treatment facility here in San Luis Obispo. I don't remember what's going on with the state water project. I know that the state water has been brought into the county, but I, I can't speak to the specifics of that. Um, but I, I do think that it's a fair question. You know, if we're gonna if we're gonna sit here and advocate for um, more new construction to to offset the housing affordability crisis we have, I, I think water is is definitely from an environmental standpoint, probably the, the number one issue that, that has to be uh, addressed. And if, um, if 
the new reality is less rainfall for for California on an annual basis. Um, that issue is just going to be exacerbated. And and I know that you know even over the last twenty years, it's it's been an area of of focus for. Um, for the building community and, and the regulations relative to building. I mean, there's water offset requirements for, for new projects, you, you, you know, where you've got to go out there and basically find ways to offset the impacts, the water impacts that, that you're going to have. When I first got into the business in, in San Luis Obispo proper in 99, um, the one of the major ways that that was done was with toilet retrofits. Mm-hmm. And um, when I, in 99, I would say about a third or, or a half of, of San Luis had accomplished these toilet retrofits. But um, anytime we would close a new escrow, the, you know, the seller was obligated to, to execute a toilet retrofit. And frankly, I mean, it's, it, that's still the case. It's just that 99% of the properties have, have been done at this point. But um, when you, when you would, do when you would execute that water retrofit, um, a credit was was issued, and builders would have to go out and basically acquire those credits and apply them to offsets for any new construction projects that were done. And there's similar programs around the county, depending on the municipality, that still require a variety of different um, water impact offsets for for new development and new construction. So. Um, I, you know, I, I, I'm not as, as expert as, as, um, I probably could be in that arena, but I do think it's a very great question. I know just what I've really, I've read about, you know, the, the slow city council talking about, about new housing units and their thoughts on, on the availability of water. And, you know, they, they seem to indicate that based on their studies and their research that they're there is sufficient water for the current community as well as growth within the community. Um, so, but again, yeah, I'm not, this isn't a passion of mine to stay on top of. So it's not something that I'm, I'm too aware of. Um, you know, I, I think one of the things, just another thought here is we go through these years of drought, like we had for so long, it seemed like, and then, um, you know, we put into place these measures to, um, require homeowners to uh, reduce water usage. I mean, mandated 25% reduction or whatever the different percentages were by by city and area. Um, and then we have one good rain year and all of a sudden we're calling off these conservation measures. I don't understand why we're not always trying to conserve all of our resources. I mean, why? why what's the point of not conserving resources? You just... It doesn't make sense to me, so I don't see why there's why rainfall totals have anything to do with that. We should all be trying to not use water when we don't need it, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's fair, and and I think we kind of have to remember that this we're kind of a desert state. I mean, we don't live in a rainforest here. So, sure. Yeah, water's a a really big issue. So yeah, it's I I wish I had a you know more specifics for you there, Michael. But I do think it's a great question and a great concern. It's something that certainly gets um, gets talked about when new projects are brought to the table uh, through that planning process. It's one of the things that you know that's discussed. It's not ignored. That's for sure. Um, what we want to roll into here though is talking about an existing uh, new home project. It's already made it through all those planning and permitting processes and is now um, it's now units available for for sale. Is that right? Well, yeah, we, we've got a, a project called Trillium in, a, in Arroyo Grande and it's um, 36 homes. 
and they are um, in various stages of construction. A few are complete, and a few are um, are not. Um, it's it's about uh, it's a little over a, a third sold already. So it's uh, it's an active new development, and it's really um, central. I think one of the best assets for this this community is its location. It's centrally located. Just off of uh, of Grand, kind of a catty corner to uh, Figueroa Brewing, and there there's just about everything that a person would would need within a, a walk of of that location. There's grocery stores, there's restaurants, there's gas stations. I mean, it's really a great location, and it's a cool little development. Um, these are two story units that range from seventeen hundred to nineteen hundred square feet. Um, they're three bedroom, two and a half bath, and two car garages. And they're priced starting in the in the five hundreds, and I, I one of the things that I that I think is worth talking about, and and I'm not here just to to um, push Trillium, although I think it's it's one that anybody considering a purchase ought to go check out. I want to I want to talk about new construction in general, and I want to talk about all of the projects that are occurring in in San Luis Obispo because I think there's a, a, an, an interesting story there, but. What you'll find is is many of the the new construction projects and Trillium is a really great example of this offer the opportunity for a buyer to get into a home that that features um, really nice upgraded finishes, really high quality kitchens and and modern open um, designs and a lot of square footage for the money. So if you go out there and and you're you're hunting for um, a resale in the marketplace, what you'll find is that the in the in the five hundred thousand range, um, you're typically going to be looking at something in the eleven to thirteen hundred square foot range. And when you go to a project like Trillium, um, you get quite a bit more more elbow room um, for the dollar. And I think that that's something that um, that buyers ought, ought to contemplate when they're when they're thinking about their purchase. What was the square footage of these homes? 17 to 19, basically. Okay. 17, 17, 17 to be exact to 19, 19 to be exact. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's always nice to have a little more space. Um, yeah. So I think it appeals to a, a number of, of different audiences. In fact, so, you know, one of the things that you'll you'll notice with most new development is that there's a push towards a density. So um, most of the new developments that, that we're seeing hit the ground have um, kind of this newer urban feel where, you know, the, the lots are not uh, are not huge. Um, it's not not a whole bunch of uh, yard space and and such. But um, that um, is a trade for quality of life and these things that we're talking about, like um, like square footage and and elbow room and and new high quality finishes. I'm familiar with that area too. Um, one thing you didn't point out is there's a nice little park that's not too far away. For kids and. There's a great park. You know, it's it's really it's just down the street from from what the residents over in in AJ, AG call the the berries. Yeah, and it's those yeah, all the streets with um that berry names, you know, Huckleberry and mm-hmm. Strawberry and, and all that. There's a band, about to be a, a new grocery store that's I I'm not sure what the name of it is, but it's kind of along the lines of Trader Joe's, which is just up the street too. So there's a it's good uh shopping that you can walk to and get area for kids and stuff. So one of the things that's interesting to us about our experience with with marketing this project is uh, I I actually thought that the target audience would be 
um, folks from the valley, for example, that wanted a, a vacation place near the beach and uh, with low maintenance, because these are certainly um, low maintenance units. You know, they, you don't have a, a big backyard that needs mowing twice a week and 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 all of that. So um, I, I really thought it would appeal to, you know, the the older folks wanting a second second home. But what we've actually seen is uh, a whole lot of young couples or young families that this trade-off that I'm talking about really is important. The square footage, the bedroom count, um, the high-quality finishes are are really important. And a lot of times those are professional um, dinks, you know, dual, dual income families that uh, spend a lot of time working really hard to to try to get ahead and they don't want to um they don't want to spend their weekend uh maintaining a, a large property. So it's been very uh, interesting and a little bit surprising to me to see the uh the appeal of these units has has been to not only a broader market but to to actually to to a demographic that was a little bit surprising to me. Well you said they started in the five hundreds? Yep. So I mean to me the that that's entry level housing in this county. I mean, I know you can find stuff cheaper um, depending on on which part of the county you land, but that that's about as good as it gets. And when you're talking new construction, when you're talking high end finishes, you know, professional t- uh, appliances in the kitchen, things like that. I mean, when I think of young families today, I think those are the things that are important to them. Like you said, they don't want to be taking care of the outside of the house so much, but they they like to entertain. They like to, you know, cooking's a big part of socializing now. Um, so having that great um, interior space where you can incorporate socializing with cooking is a big deal to young people. And, you know, like Jim's saying, it's near parks, it's near schools, it's near shopping. I mean, there's it's basically got what you need. So... Yeah, it really does. Without a lot of the the headaches and maintenance that yeah. would come with owning, you know, something that's, uh, you know, t- even ten or twenty or thirty years old, with a, a lot of uh, maintenance required on the structure, but also a larger parcel. And these do have nice little; they have nice little backyards, so there's plenty of room, you know, to put your barbecue and to sit out and get the sun and um, have a pad. I mean, all of that's accommodated here. And the design of the of the um, Project is really interesting, too, because in the center of the project, there's a common area. It's really beautiful gazebo yeah. and, a, and a nice kind of landscape lawn area. So you, you have the benefit of a yard and um, outdoor living space without the responsibilities that, that typically go along with, um, with, a, with that kind of thing. Yeah, it is really neat. I'm, you know, I'm looking at it. It's, it's hard. Sometimes I wish we had visual aids for the radio, but... You know, it's like you you pull in off the the main thoroughfare into the this project, and it's it's basically a big loop street. So not a cul-de-sac, but it's a big loop that you know only people within that neighborhood are are likely to be driving on it. So it shouldn't be a too trafficked of a road. It's got that nice park right in the center that's accessible everywhere. It's really a, an attractive looking uh, plan here that I'm seeing. Yeah, it's a great plan, and the the floor plans, like you mentioned, they they have that open concept with the kitchen and living. So, just a beautiful, wide open living spaces, lots of natural light, big windows, big um, big glass doors, and then all of the bedrooms are are upstairs. 
So uh, again, it's uh, it's really it, it's just a it's a great design. It's a great project, and the affordability is uh, is incredible for for everything that you get there. So since water was brought up earlier, um, does it have things like uh, the on-demand hot water heater? Yes, I, the hot water heaters are on demand, um, and of course, any new construction these days, you, you've got pretty radical requirements relative to low flow everything. So you've got low flow shower heads and toilets and all of that good stuff. So, and I imagine the yard, you know, what yard there is, there's not, you know, a tremendous need for water in the landscaping. No, and um, the, you know, the 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 uh, bill the buyers have quite a bit of flexibility with what they want to do in terms of landscape. But mostly, what we're seeing is is low maintenance, right. drought tolerant um, type of landscaping, and and that's certainly largely what's being done by the builders for the common areas as well. I'll say one thing, you know, as far as water usage goes, in my house we we remodeled some things and you know brought it up to modern times here. My home that was originally built in 1970. And one of the biggest frustrations about my house was the hot water heater was placed on the south side of my house and my master bathroom was on the north side of my house. So you'd sit there and start the shower or my wife wants to wash her face at night or something. And I mean, you're just sitting there with water running, waiting for it to get warm. And it seems like it takes an eternity. And I'm just watching money wash down the drain as we're waiting for some just warm water, really. Yeah. And uh, ever since we got this on-demand hot water heater, we got, you know, it still has to be on the south side of the house. So we got a recirculation loop um, installed as well. Man, it's like instant hot water anymore. No more waiting for water to get hot. That's one of the biggest things in my household that I've noticed that's made a difference um, you know, beyond landscaping changes or whatever. Oh, I think it's radical. That. The the water savings with those systems is is it's huge. I don't know the the stats, but it's got to be it's got to be radical. It's uh, yeah. I mean, my whole life I've grown up with the hot water heater where you let water run, and it's it's inst- it's insane to me, especially with what my water bill is today in Morro Bay. Quite expensive. Uh, the water costs out there, so I'm very conscious of my water usage anymore. What was the the cost of the installation of that system versus a traditional? Like, if you just were going to replace your traditional water, it's heater? more expensive. Um, you know, it was part of a a larger project. I want to say the um, the cost of just the on demand unit was somewhere around two thousand dollars. Whereas a typical hot water heater is going to be in the hundreds, you know, five hundred or so, depending on size of of the hot water heater. And then the recirculation loop, you know, it, it wasn't difficult to install, but it just added a little bit of cost. But it was worth it to me. One, I think in the long run, it's going to save me money. But two, I feel good about it. I'm, I'm not sitting there just letting water run when we're in the middle of a drought. Yeah. You know, because that bothers if, me. If anybody out there is, uh, is listening and has recently installed um, one of these in- instant hot water heaters and, and did the... Um, did the research to compare the the cost and the water savings. If you, if anybody's got that information, give us a call and and share it with everyone because I think it's a it's a it's a be a great thing to to better understand and it goes back to the question that we had earlier, you know. And and I think all all that we can do to pr- conserve water is uh, appropriate. It is a big deal. Um, you know, I just I, these random facts keep popping into my head about water. Uh, I I. I think it's kind of funny how when we have these drought times and there's restrictions put into place, it goes on to the homeowner so often, yet when you look at water usage, about 10% of all water usage is from residential housing 
water usage. The majority of it's from either agricultural or industrial. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's great that every individual homeowner can do what they can, but it still feels like a drop in the bucket to the bigger picture. Yeah, it really does. And it, and it is. And I, and I think we all, you know, want to continue to um, enjoy our spinach and cucumbers, but um, <laughs> maybe it's at some point we scratch our heads and ask how much wine do we really need on the Central Coast? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll get angry calls now. Yeah. I mean, I like my wine. Yeah. I do too. <laughs> um, okay. So again, this project that Wes is talking about, it's in, it, did you say it's Arroyo Grande or Grover Beach? It's Arroyo Grande. Arroyo Grande. Mm -hmm. Okay, so yeah, and there's about a third sold. How many units total in the project? 36. 36 units. Yeah. Um, starting in the 500s, which is, man, that seems like such a great deal anymore when you're talking median home price and the city of Slows upwards of 700,000, you know, just a, an easy 10 or 15 minute drive south, you can find brand new construction for 500,000. That's, that's something that you should definitely be thinking about. Yeah, and the builders are great folks. It's Wathen Castano Homes. They've been doing this. Uh, it's a multi-generational company. Um, they're the guys that built um, Sarah Meadows in, in San Luis Obispo. They really build a high-quality project. But above and beyond that, they're just some of the best people that you're ever going to run across. I mean, they're ethical and honest. They're fabulous to work with. Um, and the homeowners will just have a great experience um, with, with their product and, and the service that's provided there. So. So I'm curious, is there, you know, how does someone begin to inquire about that project? Well, I, there's a couple things you can do. If, if you're out there listening and, and you want to know more, um, you, you, can, you can go to pattersonrealty.com and, and learn more about the project. You can go straight to Wathen um, Castano Homes. That's wchomes.com. And that's a very easy URL to find. And once you're there, um, there's a, a list of all the communities, and, and you can just go find uh, Trillium and Arroyo Grande. And you can log on there and look at the uh, the floor plans and and uh, get a, a much better overview. But, you know, the best thing to do is, is to go check it out. You know, stop by. Uh, we, we've got the, the project is, is constantly staffed um, every day, including the weekends. And you just go over there and you, you'll meet – a couple of the um, of our absolute rock star agents, um, Colette Cattell or Kim Bankston, um, they're the ladies working the project, and they've got a couple of model homes that they'd be happy to to uh, to show you and, and answer any questions that you might have. So that's really the easiest thing to do is just get out there and check them out. I imagine if you are if this is something you're interested in and you decide that that this is the right community for you, that if you get in early enough, you can probably even pick some finishes, pick some of the Yep. You know. There's absolutely opportunity to uh, to to get involved in that. Um, I think most of the units are are um, at a construction phase where where you've got some some influence over the fit and finish and and you know and in the in the world of new construction, almost everything's an upgrade. But um, that's the nature of the beast. But there's definitely, I mean, even you know the the stuff that they're putting in that that's not upgraded is really high quality stuff. But there there are some opportunities to to do to go ab above and beyond. Um, and really put your mark on it. Well, I found it pretty interesting. I, I shared this last week. Um, I ran into a, a local realtor who you know also, Greg Astle, um, at the grocery store, and we just got to talking about real estate, and he was sharing with me that CAR has come out, uh, California Association of Realtors has come out with some new statistics about people and how long they stay in homes nowadays. 
And for the longest time, we've in in this industry, we've talked about, you know, the average homeowner stays in their home for five to seven years, maybe a little bit longer in California. Um, So we've always advised based on that metric. But he was sharing with me that Carr has kind of revised their their metrics on this, and they're finding that people are staying in homes much longer than that. I mean, upwards of 20 years. Yep. Yep. So that's the new average. When you talk about, you know, your ability to get in on new construction, help with the final design and finish um, upgrades, paying a little upgrade fee for something you're going to enjoy for 20 years and have it be just the way you like it, it's probably money well spent. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, and and certainly, I you know, I think that that the time to do it is when it's being installed, right? I mean, there's yeah. no no time like that. Oh, talk to anyone who's gone through a remodel, and they'll tell you a horror story that they yeah, had. <laughs> yeah, I don't. You don't hear very many people that that end that process and say, "Wow, I love that. Let's yeah, do it again." That was enjoyable. That was good for our marriage, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, the best time to do it is when you're single, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's not something that's usually an enjoyable process, especially when you have family or something and the kids are getting in the way it's not fun so if you can get in early help get the exact tile you want the paint color the everything and you could just move in and enjoy it that's the way to do it you sound like you're uh, speaking from experience i was gonna say <laughs> this is coming from someone who did it uh not too long ago it's uh it's it's the way to go well i know we're getting to the top of the hour dan but i i think you gave a great uh tease for for what we might come back with i mean i think that the stat um that you mentioned is is good to chat about just a little bit more um, I'd like to talk a little bit about an initiative that, that the California Association of Realtors is sponsoring to uh, create some portability with Prop 13. Sure. And then uh, if you want, you know, maybe we can make the phone ring uh, by talking a little bit about what's going on um, relative to the real estate market with the new cannabis situations oh, that we have. Okay, locally. yeah, that'll be very interesting. Um, Wes, I want to make sure that we get that contact info out so that if anyone's interested in this new development down in Rio Grande, they know how to get a hold of you or any of your agents. Yeah, well, you can you can check us out at PattersonRealty.com. You can call me direct anytime, 805-801-7061. Uh, that's my cell phone. It's... Um, practically glued to my hip so that's a great way to to communicate with me and it looks like wes is ready to get out there and show some property today came i mean i know you didn't put on the fancy clothes today just to see me in the radio uh (laughs) studio here no dan it's all for you buddy (laughs) i I wanted to look sharp for dan all right all right well we're gonna have to get this uh filming of the radio show going sooner than later um all right well like we said, we've got another hour coming to you here. We're going to take a mandatory, oh, about three, four, five-minute break or so, and we'll be back with more Mortgage Matters. Stick around. You're tuned into Mortgage Matters, which airs every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Your hosts, Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending, want you to join the conversation by calling 800-549-5832. Now, back to the show. Is a burning thing and it makes a fiery ring bound by wild desire. I fell into a ring of fire. I fell into a burning ring of fire. I went down, 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 and the flames went higher, and it burns, burns. 
Alrighty, welcome back. It's the second hour. Some say it's the best hour of Mortgage Matters. Huh. I'm here with Wes Burke. He's the broker and owner of Patterson Realty. Jim, you've got a Johnny Cash theme working this morning across Johnny. across shows. I did. I played Johnny Cash this morning during the Motor Mouse, and I thought, you know, I love Ring of Fire. That's a good one. Yeah. 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 Nobody's going to be Johnny Cash. There's not going to be another Johnny Cash. Yeah, that's true. There isn't. I was lucky lucky enough to see the Man in Black. When was that? In the 90s, mid-90s. Yeah, cool. Never yeah. got to see him. He was good. Love to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, before the break, we were talking about a little new construction project, and um, we got into a, a new statistic from the California Association of Realtors about um, how long the average Californian stays in their home, and and for the longest time, um, we've talked about you know nationwide people stay in their homes about five years. And, and in California, it's a little bit longer. It's more like seven years in California. People are staying in their homes before they're looking to make some kind of change, whether it's relocating or moving up or, you know, they've reached the age where kids are moving out of the house. So then they're, they're buying down. Um, but more recently, California Association of Realtors is finding that people are staying in their homes a lot longer. At least they're not selling their homes. You know, maybe they're converting to a rental or something like that, but they're not selling um, like they have in the past. Um, so now California Association of Realtors is thinking 20 years and up is is more of the norm for the average Californian. Um, and a lot of that, they believe, has to do with property tax issues. You know, Yeah, and it is, really, when you, when you take a, a, a serious look at it. But, I mean, even nationwide, Dan, the, the average is up around 13 years now. So wow. across the nation, this is a, a trend that's, that's occurring. But in, in California, Prop 13 creates such an incredible um, incentive for folks to not move um, – as as the listeners I'm sure are aware, when when you've owned a property for a number of years, um, and and we've seen the kind of appreciation that that we see in California, it gets to the point where um, the impact of of resetting your tax base has a pretty radical um, impact on on purchase ability or what you can afford when you move. And what we're seeing a lot across the state is as in. In the more elder population, it gets to a point where lots of people that are on on fixed income um, are simply unable to move, even unable to downsize in some circumstances because the change in the property tax base would so radically impact their monthly expenses that they're stuck. So you said something a minute ago that made me think, is the Prop 13 – um, is that unique to California? Do other states? I've I've only ever lived in California, so is that not the case in other states? Where no, it's not the case in every state, but there are states that have similar um, um, tax situations. Florida is an example, and in fact, Florida was kind of the case study for the California Association of Realtors when when we explored the idea of creating a ballot initiative to. Um, increase the uh, the impact of Prop 13 in such a way that it would uh, free up some of these folks that we're talking about that are stuck based on um, based on their um, tax situation um, and it's it's in, it's it's an interesting conversation so um, 
the CAR has created a ballot initiative to create portability for Prop 13. So right now, um, Prop 13 allows you basically to move um, one time when you're over 55 years old, you can move to a property that's um, lower in value and you can take your tax base with you. It, 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 it has a, um, a component to it that is uh, reciprocity across county lines. So if two counties agree, then you can take your ta- tax base with you across county lines. But the reality is um, there is no reciprocity, reciprocity with any counties um, for San Luis Obispo. So the the way for San Luis Obispo residents, you can only execute this transfer one time when you're over 55 years old, trading down in value. Right. So, so Prop 13 is what holds your tax base at your basis, your purchase price or fair market value. If you got some screaming deal. Um, you know, it'll be assessed at, at a fair market value. And then from there, it can only go up a cost of living increase annually. Correct. So when you go through these cycles of, of big home appreciation, capping it at a cost of living um, factor is is a huge benefit to a homeowner. And then over time, that benefit just becomes more and more so. We actually talked about this last week, I think, or the week before my aunt and uncle moved here from Santa Clara County. Right. to Santa Bar- to uh, Paso Robles. And they bought the house pre-1976 in Santa Clara County, which was at four, I think they paid $48,000 for it. And of course it's down the street from the new Apple campus up there. So now the property value is at $1.9 million and their property tax was based on $48,000 in yeah. 1976. So then they moved down to Paso Robles and they don't have the, you know, they couldn't transfer that property rate, even though their house in Paso, they paid, they sold for 1.9 million in a task in uh, Santa Clara and paid 1.2 in Paso, but, um, they weren't able to transfer the tax. Yeah. So their, that. their tax, so their, tax their property up, taxes but, went from $450 a year to, to um, uh, like twelve thousand. Yeah. So now they've got a thousand dollar a month yeah. tax payment now that they yeah. used to not have, yeah, yeah. or a thousand dollar a month yeah. increase in their tax consequence. Mm-hmm. And you know, it sounds like that, that this is within affordability to them. I mean, to it didn't prevent them from them. executing yeah, a move, and that's great is. for them. But the reality yeah. is that would would prevent a lot of people. Uh-huh. From being able to make the move, and yeah. we, you know, a yeah. part of a part of putting this yeah. ballot initiative together, we looked mm-hmm. at a, a lot of case studies. And from a marketing standpoint, mm-hmm. um, if we get enough signatures to get this thing on the ballot, you'll start to hear yeah. some of these stories in the media. But there are lots of stories where people get to the point where they they need to move closer to family for yeah. healthcare reasons, and well, they literally can't afford to make the move. Yeah. And they can afford it, but the, it's just kind of a shocking when you go from that kind of a tax rate up in Santa Clara County to here. And then you're, it's going to be, like you said, about $400 a year up there. And now it's going to be a thousand dollars a month about. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. a payment that doesn't ever go away. That property tax sticks no. with you forever. No. Um, so it's that prop 60 that allows you to transfer the tax base one time. And, 
and like you said, there's some restrictions on it. You have to do it within a two-year period of selling your home. If you find the replacement home before selling your existing home, it has to be 100% of your current property's market value or lower. Um, if you sell, if you acquire the new property within a year, um, you know, a year, the year after selling your home, it can be as high as 105% of market value of the property you sold. And within two years of selling your house, it can be as high as 110%. But when we're experiencing 10 years in a row of 8, 10, 12% appreciation, sometimes moving down, I mean, the whole idea is that you're an empty nester and you're moving down, right? That's the right. whole premise of this ball- of this Prop 60. Yep. But when you're selling your five-bedroom house that's, you know... Th- $500,000, let's say, somewhere, and you're moving into a two-bedroom house in a, you know, the place you've always wanted to live. Say you're moving from Sacramento to the Central Coast, and you could sell your big five-bedroom house that you've, you just don't even need all that room anymore. You're getting $500,000 for that, and then you come and look for just something modest here on the Central Coast. I mean, it's hard to find something for $500,000, so you can't even find that replacement even when you are buying down. Yeah, and there's Sometimes. multiple problems that are triggered in in the scenario that you just mentioned. First of all, um, there's no reciprocity, so you can't tra- transfer it across county lines. Mm-hmm. So that would be the you know the first prohibitive barrier. Um, and then second, like you said, the value um, the value often is is a, is an issue. It's it's not always possible to to trade down to accomplish the 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 uh, the objectives here. So. The ballot initiative that CAR is, has put together, and we're in the midst of collecting signatures right now. In fact, I'll get your signature today okay. before we leave. <laughs> um, it basically creates portability. So it, it does a couple of things. One, it makes it mandatory to have reciprocity across all counties in the state. So it frees up the capacity to execute this tax-based transfer, regardless of where you're moving with within the state. And the second thing it does, well, it, um, a few more things that it does. One, it uh, removes the the one-time limitation, so you'd be able to do it multiple times. Oh, cool! Um, and um, it's it it, it is um, going to create the ability to trade up. So the in your example. Um, if you were moving from an area, let's say Fresno, that has you know radically different property values than the Central Coast, even if you're trading down in size but the value is higher, you'd be able to move your tax base there um, on the portion of the transaction up to the sell price of the property. And then you would have a blended rate, so the value that you pay that's in excess of what you sold for would have the current tax rate assessed to that portion, so you would have a blended tax rate. But still, it's it creates um, the opportunity to to really have uh, the benefit that Prop 13 was in, intended to to create and have it uh, move with you across county lines. And um, so, they, if you sell your home in Fresno for say three hundred thousand dollars, and you buy a home on the Central Coast for five hundred thousand dollars. You're going to be able to transfer your tax base for that first $300,000 of your new purchase, and then you'll only be taxed at the current rate on the remaining $200,000 of that new purchase. Correct, yep. So the first $300,000, you would bring your, your tax base with you, and then you'd be taxed on the on the difference, the $200,000 at the, the 1.1%. And that's a huge that, – that, that can be a huge difference for people. For, I mean – you're talking about people who've owned their home for 30 years and maybe bought it for 
$50,000 or less. I mean, that's a big difference. In, yeah, it really is. The, I mean, I, I've got a, a good friend that's in real estate here in San Luis, um, and she she owns a, a great home um, over in the, the Bishop area, and, it, you know, it's, it's a really nice home, um, but it's small. Um, she's a, a single lady and her, her tax, uh, I think is in the 400 and something dollar a year range. I mean, it's really low and she got in a situation where, um, she wanted to, she wanted, her family wanted to move to her. So her kids have kids and they wanted to kind of live together with grandma and, um, and it was impossible for them to go and buy a, a different home because they would have had to upsize. There's no way for her, you know, to meet the requirement to downsize and accomplish what they were trying to do. Mm. Um, and so they ended up doing um, a remodel, and and it's fine. I, I mean, it's it's not a tragic situation, but it is an example of how the existing way that Prop 13 and Prop 60 create limitations that that really are problematic for for a lot of people. Um, if if this portability um, initiative had had have passed before this dilemma for her, you know, I think the obvious solution would would have been for them to go find a a larger property, and and um, it, it would have just created a lot more opportunity for them. And so the belief from the state level is that by making changes to this property tax law, that it would enable people to to move and to upsize downsize whatever but be able to move into a more favorable position with their with their primary residence right and put and free up housing stock for other home buyers and that's the big point so you know you you talked about we started the conversation talking about the length of 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 time that people stay in their home and a, a big part of the reason that California is you know, something like seven or 10 years in excess of the national average is because this Prop 13 issue is exacerbating people's opportunity to execute a move. So the study that CAR conducted prior to um, deciding to move forward with this ballot initiative um, determined that there there would be about 40,000 transactions created um, through this initiative, that, that there were some variables on the initiative. Then they, they originally they looked at trying to do away with the um, 55 year old age requirement, um, and that would have that would have freed up about 60 or 65 thousand transactions across the state. But um, they did a fair amount of uh, political survey and and discovered that um, the initiative stands a much better chance of of passing by leaving that age restriction um, in the mix. So the the number of units is that on an annual basis? Yes. So by changing this law, there's belief that forty thousand units per year would transact that otherwise wouldn't. Right. Right. Wow. Yeah. And you know that's a that's a big deal. We we talked about early in the show. We talked about um, San Luis Obispo proper as an example. In 2016, there were 444 transactions. In 2017, there were 357. So nearly a 25% decline in the number of transactions. And when we're talking about the supply and demand equation, the affordability crisis, a big part of this is the availability of homes to you know to feed the the market in the cycle. So creating you know even 40,000 
additional transactions around the state is going to have some positive impact Absolutely. on affordability without Im further impacting resources. Your caller called in and was obviously concerned about the impact on water for, for new construction. And so this is a really great way to create um, more transactions, more inventory, more opportunity for Californians to meet their housing requirements um, without negatively impacting the environment. So right now, this initiative process, is is it just gathering signatures right now to get to the level where it can be an initiative? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what's going on. And it's, it's um, man, this initiative process is crazy. Half a million signatures are, are required to get um, an initiative on, on the ballot. And so uh, the California Association of Realtors, we as Realtor members are out there actively trying to, to gather signatures. Um, there's also been, of course, uh, firms that that have been hired across the state of California, and they're they're doing the thing in front of grocery stores like you see so often. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate the opportunity to to share information with with um, your listeners about this locally, because my hope is that that um, people that think this is a good idea, um, you know, contact your favorite realtor and tell them you want to sign their their initiative. We every realtor in the state received a. Um, a, a ballot initiative signature collection packet and and you can call your your favorite realtor and you can sign theirs and if you run across somebody in front of Vons or or one of the other grocery stores that's collecting signatures for this please please sign it because i i really do think it's a a valuable and and valid initiative the other thing that's probably worth mentioning is that uh the 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 obvious objection that people might have um, is, well, what does this do to our tax base, right? If if we get a bunch of people moving to San Luis Obispo from Fresno and they're carrying their tax base with them uh, from over there, isn't that going to decrease our, our tax revenue? Um, and the, the reality is the case study that we looked at in Florida where the same concern existed, um, that problem did not occur because the uh, tax benefit from the additional transactions actually offset any uh, um, predicted reduction in in tax revenue. So it was actually tax positive hmm. rather than being tax um, negative. So I, I think the primary objection is is not one that's uh, that should be a valid concern. So to me, it's kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, I feel that way too. I didn't even think of that objection, but I could see that. But yeah. to see that in another state where it's already happening, it's it's having the op, you know, it's having a positive effect. It's seems like any negative thought about it is is not there anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's tough to argue with when you when you go look at a, a state that's that's actually gone through this process and it's it's been tax positive. It's um it's it's tough to find a reason not to get behind this kind of thing. And it's uh, I mean, I'll just tell you, I've been involved with um I've been a, on the on the board of directors for the California Association of Realtors. Um, probably for about the last 12 years or something like that. This year's the first year that I'm I'm not a director, but it's a fantastic organization. But this is absolutely the most expensive, risky, um, political move that the California Association of Realtors has ever made. And the mm. decision – you know, really was based on the fact that the the association is in, you know, we've enjoyed um, robust membership and increases in membership over the last years and uh, the last 10 years or so. And we and we have 
Um, we have funds to tackle a project of this size, and we truly believe that the affordability crisis in California is just that, a crisis. And we think that this is a way to have uh, an impact on the housing situation and create more affordability across the state. And I'm really, really proud of of the association for jumping in and, and taking something that's, you know, a political hot potato and that's going to be radically expensive. I mean, um, that you know, the estimate is is somewhere around ten million dollars um, to to run a ballot initiative. So wow. a lot of money is is being spent on this thing. And I, I really hope that we can pull it off. You know, half a million signatures is um, is a lot where I think that we, we have until March and we're only about a quarter of a way there. So the, the efforts are going to really have to be ramped up to get it on the on the on the ballot. And then if we get it on the ballot, um, then obviously there's a tremendous um, campaign necessary to to promote it and explain to the public what they're voting on and and inspire them to to vote for it rather than against it you know um ballot initiatives don't don't have a great success record it's it's a risky business to to get into um but a lot of um a lot of study has been done and we think we can win this thing but the the first step is to get it on the ballot and we think that you know, frankly, the Association of Realtors is a pretty powerful political force. I mean, they, they say that it's the most powerful political force in Sacramento, excepting maybe only the trial attorneys. And nationwide, there's a lot of political power that the, the realtors um, pack as well. But um, this this is a it's a big initiative. It's a big undertaking. I think it's being done for all the right reasons. And I just encourage the, the folks out there to, to get behind it. Is this something is this? initiative process the signature gathering does it have to be live signatures like wet signatures or can it be through an email or website type no nope. format? it's got to be wet signatures it's really a sticky situation and in fact um you know the um the california association of realtors sent uh, this packet that i talked about which you know describes the initiative has the language in there and on the back there's the signature page and and we only asked the realtors to get five signatures each if if every realtor in the state got f- five signatures we'd we'd be there at, at the required level but already about 25% of the uh, submissions have been rejected for a variety of reasons one um one, the initiative signature gathering requirements are are radically strict. So you can't have signatures on one initiative from individuals from different counties. So if you're registered to vote in Fresno, for example, you can't sign the same um, signature card that I've got. And some realtors have have made the mistake of of letting that happen. Others have torn the signature page off and sent it in. And and again, that disqualifies the whole thing. It has to be Mm. sent as a complete package. So it's kind of a it's a tricky thing. And and it has to be done uh, very, very uh, correctly in order for the signatures to count. It's an arduous process. So it's it's no small undertaking. But we do believe that we'll get there. And, And when you're trying to get it on the ballot for this November. Correct. Okay. And if we get there, which I suspect we will, I, I think that there's actually a good chance once we – if we can get enough signatures and get the signatures confirmed, I think that uh, Sacramento pays enough attention to what the realtor organization is doing. We may actually um, be invited to sit down with, with lawmakers prior to putting this thing on the on the ballot to navigate a way to create this legislation without it, it, it having to go – um, through the ballot process, which would be beneficial only in that um, a lot of 
campaign money would be saved um, if we were able to to get lawmakers' attention and 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 get a bill um, to to accomplish the same feat. So that's a that's a possibility for us as well. I think all of that really is predicated on the signature gathering process. The better that we do um, with that endeavor, the more attention that, that we'll gain and, and probably the more opportunities that will be created. Well, I'm in, and uh, I think Jim said he was – yeah, I see a yeah. nod over here. Jim's I'm ready to sign too. Pretty much in on that, yeah. Okay. Right. There we go. All right. Well, that's um, – that's, I think that's great news. I, I hope others share that, that sentiment as well, and um, I hope that you'll keep us updated on that in particular. That's a – yeah, it seems like a big change to. for yeah. California. Um, it is time to take a commercial break. We're uh, getting down to it here. We only got a half hour left. If you'd like to share a comment or ask a question, you can give us a call at 543-8830. 543-8830 rings the phone here right in the studio. We can get your question or comment live on the air. Um, we're going to have to take this last commercial break of the show, and we'll be right back with more Mortgage Matters. To ask a question or make a comment, call 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Mortgage Matters on KBEC News Talk 920. We'll be back after these messages from our sponsors. We're the mortgage experts on the Central Coast. Central Coast Lending. Central Coast Lending. When you buy or refinance a home. Just call 543 Loan. Just call 543 Loan. Just call 543 Loan. We're the mortgage experts on the Central Coast. Central Coast Lending. Central Coast Lending is locally owned and operated with locations in Paso Robles, Morro Bay, Atascadero, San Luis Obispo, and Arroyo Grande. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people, agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley and Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley and Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley and Blakesley for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to Mortgage Matters on KVEC News Talk 920. If you missed any part of the show, log on to centralcoastlending.com for archived shows and more. Now, back to your hosts, Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending. An old cowboy went riding out one dark and windy day. On a ridge he rested as he went along his way When all at once a mighty herd of red-eyed cows he saw Plowing through the ragged skies And up a cloudy draw Their brands were still on fire and their hooves were made of steel 
horns were black and shiny, and their hot breath he could feel. All right. We're back for the home stretch. Hopefully it's warming up out there. It's pretty chilly when I woke up. It's not supposed to be 40 degrees right next to the ocean. You're not used to that. No. It was cold. I don't even want to ask you how cold it was up in up in Garden Farms. I actually think it was not not that cold. Okay. It was warmer than that. Yeah, I was half joking with you that I, I contemplated taking a little drive down to the ocean to warm up. Yeah, it was, 30, it was 37 at the ocean this morning driving in. Yeah, so. but the water, the water's got to be around 50. It's yeah. rare that you can get in the water and be warmer than the, yeah. than out of the water in Morro Bay. Um, yeah, so it's thawing out, looking forward to starting my weekend. But before, we've got a, got a little more to talk about. And uh, we were going to shift gears a little bit and talk about... Um, Talk about a big issue that's being discussed in both the real estate and the mortgage side of our industry, and that's how do we work with all of this cannabis money that is now out there and, you know, wanting to circulate and, you know, be part of the system. But a lot of banks are having trouble. You know, they don't want to accept it. There's federal rules against it. So there's a lot of confusion and just, you know, this. it seems like... My opinion of it is there's a lot of these big institutions, whether it's title and escrow companies or banking institutions, the easy answer is to say, nah, we're just going to, until the laws are clear, we're just going to stay away. Yeah, well, that's that's a reality, and it kind of it came up and surprised me with um, with an experience that that we've had here locally, so I'll, I'll, I'll get to, to that, and I'll share that experience, and then we'll talk about what it means, but um, a little background, you know, um, if you've pay if you pay any attention to the news you're aware that California went rec legal on on January 1st and in um kind of ramping up to that um all around the state there's been quite a lot of of cannabis related activity in fact cannabis is the most robust um industry in the United States right now more money is dumping into that industry than any industry across the entire country and San Luis Obispo is is not an exception if um, again, if you've paid attention to the news, you you've seen that the county supervisors have um, gone through a very long, arduous process of coming up with an ordinance to deal with with cannabis um, and regulate. And and local municipalities are are fighting the same battle. I I just saw, in fact, I think uh, just about a week ago, the city of San Luis Obispo put up their first draft of a of an ordinance for the city of San Luis Obispo. Of course, Grover got out ahead of the curve, and they have. A, a rather progressive ordinance that's that's in place, and we in the real estate industry have started to see um, activity. We've got people that want to acquire land to grow and or process cannabis. So let me tell you this little story. We've got a piece of property listed um, down in um, South County. Um, actually, the, I think it it may have been Napoma, it may actually have, have been Santa Maria, so it could have been northern Santa Barbara County. But nonetheless, a big agricultural piece of property listed. We got multiple offers on the property, um, three to be specific. Two of them were buyers that had specifically identified that they were trying to buy a piece of property for cannabis growing. Hmm. So um, that's all fine and dandy. We, you know, We'll sell property to anybody that wants to buy it, we thought. And um, what happened is as we were navigating this, this 
um, these offers negotiating between a buyer and seller started to communicate a little bit with uh, the title company and we noticed that the title company put out a preliminary title report and there's now um, a clause within the exceptions of the title report that specify if cannabis related activity is occurring on the property or if the intended use of a purchaser is cannabis related because of the discrepancy between state and federal law the title company will not issue a title policy if they find out that they've closed an escrow and there's cannabis related activity on that property the title policy will be null and void furthermore escrow will not transact with the same knowledge either on a property that has existing cannabis related activity or um um with the buyer who intends to engage in cannabis related activity hmm. um because they can't successfully deposit the funds in an FDIC institution because um it's still illegal to bank money that comes from a federally illegal activity and all of this is further exacerbated um, by the um, actions, recent actions of the Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who basically um, withdrew the Cole memo, which was a it was a, a document that that prevented the federal government from spending money pursuing prosecution of activities that were legal in states, even though they might be illegal at the federal level. So that protected cannabis activities in states like California and Oregon and Colorado. Um, that has been withdrawn, and that opens the opportunity for federal prosecution once again for, for these kinds of activities. And I think that really got the attention of um, of the title and, and escrow community. And now I know at least two of the three major title companies um, are putting this, these um, exceptions in, in their um, formal policies, and they will literally not participate in an escrow. They won't issue a title policy, and that makes doing a transaction that's got anything to do with cannabis very, very difficult to accomplish. <sighs> Gosh, what a challenging situation. So I'm sitting here, I'm thinking about a title policy. And a title policy is protecting the buyer against anything that might be unknown, any encumbrances, any any liens, any anything that might pertain to any rights on the land. I mean, it's just basically giving you like, here's what you can and can't do. Here's what's owed and not owed. I mean, this is what you want to know when you buy a property so you don't get yourself in hot water. Um, if a buyer wasn't honest about the use of the land and they were able to see a title report and then somehow later it was found out that they had in this use in mind they've already seen the title report. So do they already have the information needed to make their assessment on whether to purchase or not? Well, they, they can, but the reason that title policies exist is, is for the unknown. It's for the situations where um, a title report doesn't show an encumbrance because for some reason it's non-visible at the time. 
Um, and that's why we have title insurance, because those things do happen. Occasionally, somebody comes out of the woodwork and they make a claim against the title of a piece of property. And, and you know, the title policy is, is what steps in to defend situations like that and, and sometimes pay out because sometimes those claims are valid. But in, in this circumstance, you know, the, the buyer, if you're able to navigate a transaction, I mean, that's a challenge in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah, I've been doing this for 20-something years, Dan, and I have never done – I've never done a single or seen a single transaction done without the assistance of an escrow company and an escrow process. Yeah. So, you know, I, I I suppose that we could conduct a real estate transaction outside of that. I mean, we could – we could create the necessary documentations and and maybe get an attorney to to do the deed work and and take it down and and record it ourselves you know money would have to transfer from a buyer to seller and in these situations often it's cash i mean there's springs up all kinds of complicated challenges but i suppose it could be done but it's certainly something that i'm not familiar with and i've never done before but we may be faced at looking at ways to do this i mean I, I think the reality is it's going to be a, a, a major um, disclosure issue. The The reality is there's um, a lot of opportunity for the cannabis industry. So I don't think the interest is going to um, right. go away. I mean, there's going to be people that want to do it. There so, are people out there that do it. In fact, to, to be very uh, transparent with you, I've got a client coming in next week and the in the intention is to go find a piece of property where they can grow cannabis. But how are you how are they going to buy it? I don't know yet. If they can't get a title policy, they can't transact through an escrow, they can't put funds in a bank and, you know, use wire. They have to sit there and hand bales of cash to to the seller. How do you, how do you conduct that transaction and know that you're going to get what you pay for and that you're not buying a whole bunch of problems? Yeah, I think it's a brave new world. I mean, I, I think for a period of time, at least, um, uh, it's going to be a, a buyer buyer beware sort of situation. I mean, I, I think if we're able to navigate a transaction, they're going to have to to enter into that transaction knowing that we we we're not going to have the luxury of a of a fully vetted escrow company managing or navigating the process from from open to close. And ultimately, they're going to own a piece of property with um, uh, a different level of exposure rel relative to claims against title. I mean, one of the properties that we're going to go go look at is currently is a registered cannabis grow. So not only do they intend to use it relative to cannabis or in the cannabis realm, but current activity on the property, you know, there's 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 a registered cannabis activity right now. On that property, but uh, you can imagine for for industry professionals like myself, um, you know, it, it's a, it's a very challenging thing. I mean, I, I think that a, a lot of um, realtors and maybe even brokerages will simply choose not to participate. But uh, that's a difficult de decision to make. I mean, this 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 particular property that 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 I'm talking with you about is is on the market for five million dollars. I would like to participate in that yeah, transaction. Sure. I mean, that, that's a significant uh, transaction with a significant commission that um, my my kids need new shoes. Sure, and that can buy a few pairs of shoes. It's a big, you know, it's a big. It's and I only say that to demonstrate that there's a lot of opportunity out there, um, you know, that's tied to the cannabis industry. Um, 
And it's going to be difficult to just say, well, we're not going to we're not going to participate because it's a it's a lot of lost opportunity that we could theoretically be talking about. So I, I have been over the last week and will continue to explore um, solutions to this. But but right now I've not fi- found a great solution. The, the next step uh, will be to reach out to practitioners in states like Colorado and uh, Washington and Oregon who have a few years uh, more, um, you know, in, with a, a legal market where perhaps they have found some interesting ways to navigate this. There may even be specialty um, escrow and or title companies that, that have popped up specifically to, uh, to deal in, in, in these kinds of situations. I've not found that yet. I'll, I'll be exploring that, but it's a, uh, it was an interesting issue. It kind of, it kind of snuck up on me. I, um, you know, one of the things that the real estate companies, and I think you too, in the mortgage industry, we carry, um, what's called E&O insurance, errors and emissions insurance. And that kind of protects the the real estate professionals um, from situations where something goes sideways in a transaction. Maybe something is missed that we're unaware of and it, and it, and it, you know, ultimately ends up in litigation. Well, these, this, in, these insurance policies kind of um, then come to, to defend the real estate practitioner, as long as there's not fraud or something, you know, nefarious like that involved, um, and I imagine one of their exceptions is also anything to do with cannabis. Well, <laughs> I, I spoke with our uh, E&O company uh, uh, with an attorney, and um, it was interesting that th- it was the first conversation like this that they had had, oh. which I find surprising given the you know that these companies are big nationwide companies. And they've got policies in Colorado and Oregon and Washington, and, and nobody had brought it to their attention. And you know, you had mentioned earlier one of the the possibilities. You know, if if a um, it, it's possible that a transaction could occur with um, out the escrow or title company being aware that there was planned cannabis activity, right? I mean, we're not in the habit of going to the escrow company and saying, "This is what they're going to do on the property." Right. The buyer intends to grow grapes. Right. Just so you know. Right. Yeah. That's not that's not on the questionnaire. Yeah. So <laughs> it's it's not actually um, you know it's not impossible to think that even a even a real estate practitioner, for example, might not always know. Right. You might have a buyer that comes and says, "Hey, we're looking for something that's a you know a hundred acre parcel ag zoned and and we don't want to talk anymore about what our use is. And a realtor could easily say, okay, fine, let's go find it. They go find it, open escrow, you navigate the escrow, you get through the process, the escrow closes, and a title policy is is issued, right? Well, I wanted to talk to our uh, E&O provider about some of some of these these issues. Like, for example, if we do know as a realtor, if we do know there's an intended use or an existed, existing use, do we have an obligation to disclose it? To, to the escrow company. And I think the reality is there's no ethical or legal obligation to disclose it, although that's a very uncomfortable situation for me. I mean, we like to practice above the board. We don't try to pull shade over anybody's eyes in any way transactionally. So that gives me a lot of heartburn in and of itself. Um, but the one thing that, that's become very, very, very clear as we think about how all of this may unfold is that the likelihood of getting through an escrow process without the question coming up is pretty slim. And if we're asked by the escrow company, then we have a legal and ethical obligation to tell the truth. So, um, you know, even if you don't know that the intended use is cannabis, for example, but the buyer comes in with five hundred thousand dollars cash to try to close the escrow, the 
title company is now going to ask, is this related to federally illegal activity? Mm -hmm. So the likelihood of even getting it done without the escrow company learning about this and and then declining to close the escrow and issue a title policy, it's just just not a really great chance. Well, and you bring up the point of just the actual... Physical, the, the transaction, the money actually changing hands. And it's, I don't believe that escrow companies are even allowed to handle cash in any quantity. You know, I don't think they can even take change. They want checks. And for anything larger than, than, you know, just a couple bucks here or there, they want cashier's checks, wires, you know, that that's the kind of transaction they facilitate they don't let you just back up the truck and start wheelbarrowing out greenbacks that's just not the way they work they're not equipped to do that so how i don't even know that a transaction could take place unless you could get that money deposited into a bank so that's another challenge it it may literally be that that um that practitioners that want to participate in in this market opportunity are going to have to learn how to um, to navigate from the point of a contract through the recordation of a transfer of the deed without the assistance uh, of an escrow company, and that's going to involve some really risky risky situations, like for example, transferring um, trucks full of cash from a buyer to a seller prior to the recordation of a deed. I mean, all of this stuff is why we use escrow companies. This is the kind of ex- exactly the kind of exposure we don't want any part right. of. Well, and I'm. This isn't a small transaction. I mean, it's one thing if you want to put ten thousand bucks to risk or something like that. But when we're talking a hundred acres on the central coast, I mean, millions of dollars. Usually, multi millions of dollars <laughs> right. is what we're talking about. That's yeah. a lot of money. That's more than most people are willing to risk without all of the po- possible information that they could get. Yeah. So yeah, that's scary. It's complicated, and and I think that uh, you know there there are already a, a lot of realtors on the Central Coast that are participating in in helping people with cannabis related activity, and I'm I'm curious how many of them um, are in for this particular surprise that they're they're not even aware of or haven't haven't thought about because you know until it happened to us, I, it didn't strike me that this was going to be a problem, and and I've paid particularly close attention to uh, the cannabis industry in this evolution. I mean, I've, I've sat in many of the supervisors meetings on the, on the topic and, and I've been following it for a number of years and it totally caught me off guard. I imagine it's something that's going to be in a topic of discussion more and more. I mean, if, if it's legal now in the state, I mean, depending on what transpires at a federal level, I, I, it seems like it's just got the conversation has to develop yeah, in well, some there's way a way to figure there, out how to make transactions work. There's a couple things in the in the national news relative to this issue that are that are interesting. I just read yesterday um, that that there's a bill that's gaining a lot of support that would fix the banking issue. Um, I think if we fix the banking issue, then we could at least close an escrow. Right, we, the title company may still not issue a policy because. I, the concern relative to the title policy, I think, even though really a, a title policy is to pr- protect from historic issues, right? It doesn't protect going forward. Right. But the concern is if the feds come in and they um, seize the property, then the title company doesn't want the buyer to make a claim against the title policy, right? So the, I think – I believe that that's why that they're unwilling to issue a title policy. 
It doesn't totally make sense to me because of what I just described, but nonetheless, I, I think that's the perceived issue. So, um, you know, if, if the banking issue is resolved, um, then that I think solves the escrow component, but it doesn't solve the title policy component. And I, you know, I think that, I mean, I've been doing this for over 20 years, like I mentioned, and I have seen very, very few title issues come up. I mean, maybe one or two in my entire career yeah. that I've even heard about, you know, a, a claim against title that triggered uh, the the Some need kind of the need to lean on a title policy. It's just see, not very common. That's what I'm thinking. And I, I feel like if you could at least see whatever historical records that the title company does have, yeah, you might be taking a small risk on the potential unknown that, that could pop up sometime. But those are so so unlikely to happen that I feel like they're that at least if you had as much information as was readily available at the time that people might be willing to take that risk. Yep. I, I agree. You know, that greatly reduces the risk. At least you know something. Yep. I, I think that's true. Mm-hmm. And I think that the County ordinance, um, and I, I've been outspoken in, in social media and, and such on, on this issue, but I, I really, I'm appalled at the job our supervisors did dealing with the cannabis issue. I just think it's atrocious on many, many levels. Um, but you know, one of the reality is there are 141 growers that registered their grows um, back in 2016 and, and 17 before this ordinance went in, into effect. And the ordinance limits the ability to to apply for a license to grow in the county-governed areas of San Luis Obispo to those 141 registered growers. Well, it's known that over half of those growers are currently growing on a parcel that does not meet the requirements of the ordinance. So roughly 100 of those 141 registered growers who are the only people that even have a right to apply for a license to grow legally are out there looking for a place to grow. And many of them have the desire and capacity to purchase rather than lease. And in, well, in fact, the ordinance requires that, that you own the land. So mm. they're out there hunting for places to buy. And this issue is going to complicate their lives radically and I encourage them to get out ahead of this and in fact even if you know if there are any growers out there um, I happen to be a a friendly realtor to the industry so (laughs) give me a couple weeks and hopefully I will have solved this problem as I've mentioned I've got a a personal incentive uh, pressing to figure out a way to navigate (laughs) transactions in this space so I, I am going to diligently look for an appropriate solution so Anybody that's out there that uh, that needs help in in that arena, give us a give us a shout, and hopefully before long we will will have at least the best answer. It may not be a great answer, but at least the best answer relative to how how to navigate those transactions. Whew, man, it's not easy, huh? This weed thing is complicated. Just want to buy some shoes for my kids. <laughs> that's it. Help Wes get some shoes. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, there's so many great topics today. Um, we were all over the place. Yeah, we? yeah. We we really hit a lot of different things. I'd like to just circle back real quickly to, um, to the the project that that your company is um, is uh, selling down in Arroyo Grande. 
It's no, the, thanks, What did Dan. you say? It's the Trillium? Trillium. Trillium yeah. project. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can we hear about that one more time? I know we've only got a couple minutes left here. Yeah, it's just a, it's a great new construction project, 36, uh, 36 homes, um, really killer um, floor plans, killer design, great fit and finishes, good um, light, great community, really a, a beautiful layout of the community itself with um, uh, a really nice, attractive open space that, that everything kind of opens up to. Um, centrally located, walking distance to restaurants, to grocery, to all of the amenities that that somebody might need. Just really in the kind of in the the heart of Arroyo Grande on um, just off Grand Street. Um, great company, Wathen um, is. They're just great builders. And yeah, give us a call at uh, at call me direct at eight zero one seven zero six one. You can call the company at five four four seven thousand. Go go by, you know, go meet Colette or Kim and, and let them show you this this opportunity. It's a heck of a lot of square footage, a heck of a lot of really nice uh, amenities and finishes for the dollar. And, uh, you know, as always, Central Coast Lending loves to help new home buyers navigate this home buying process. There's a lot to think about, whether it's budgeting, how to come up with the cash to close, the different loan programs and, and monthly costs of financing. We love to help people out with that. Give us a call. At 543-LOAN, that's 543-5626. Rings all of our offices throughout the county. You can also check us out on the web, centralcoastlending.com. We've got an online loan application that helps you start the process. We'd love to help you. Uh, we'll be back next week with another edition of Mortgage Matters.